I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Have you ever wondered why you're not making a podcast? Maybe because you think it's too hard. Well, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. First of all, it's free. And there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I mean, you're immediately in the podcast game. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. So right now, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Just go to A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M and join me on Anchor. The majority conclusion is that these things are real and under intelligent control. Presented by Euphemet. Broadcasting from the heart of Cascadia and the edge of the world. Welcome to Night Drift. Presented by Euphemet. I'm Jim Perry. Thank you for listening to this bonus series. Tonight I'm joined again by co-host Tim Rothschild. This time in a discussion with Dr. Dean Graydon. His most recent book, Real Magic, presents magic as a natural aspect of reality, with each of us able to tap into its power. That's now on this bonus series, Night Drift, presented by Euphemed. Tim, my cat just tried to tackle me. Tell me more. You know, she, she does this when there's like some sort of great insight that's about to take place <laughs> she decides to get violent about it and uh it's consistent there's something to it there's some form of uh greater intelligence going on there i'm convinced of it the timing impeccable <laughs> cats are special like that they do know they can sense that something's about to happen and they just want to get involved I just want to be a part of it all, huh? Hi, Lucy. 
She's saying so. She's channeling. Yeah. There it is. Yeah, Same. she's channeling. Yeah, exactly. That's what happens. They can read that, huh? Well, my my pet psychic says that one of my cats, the one that just she likes to just go outside at night <clears throat> and just sits in the middle of the yard and just straight up meditates. And all day long she just sits in the closet, just meditates. <laughs> I think said that she likes to be in the worlds between. That's where she likes to spend most of her time. I get that. Yeah, that's also like a dog energy too, right? Like being someplace in between. Is that what hey, dog? Really? Thanks for joining. Yeah, I've I've heard. I mean, I don't have a pet psychic, but you, you gotta get Lana you gotta get Lana on the program. Yeah, I would love that. That would be so much fun. Have you wait, so you have you've never you've never talked to her? I never sent you her info or anything? I think he did. I just never had the chance to to talk to her or reach out. It was when I wasn't really doing these and I was gonna reach out about doing an actual documentary with her, but yeah, that would be great. That'd be so cool. Yeah, I mean, seemingly so much of the spiritual world and connection, even psychic connection, has to do with animal interactions. I need to read that book that you recommended as well. That would be great. Which one? Hi there, Dr. Dean Radin. Hello. How are you doing? I really like your uh, your your backdrop there. Yeah, I'm living in the future. I know. Gee whiz. I want to go there right now. It looks clean and safe and like maybe like you could go outside and enjoy yourself. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure if this is a window or this is a bubble. <laughs> uh, it might be safe, but no yeah. one's out there, so it's not clear. Yeah, seems like probably just more of a bubble in, in terms of what we're dealing with now. Uh, I'm so excited you're joining us tonight. You know, Tim here and myself have listened to you countless times on Art Bell and I've read your material. And just recently I've started doing some interviews to be sort of a quarantine companion to my documentary work. So the opportunity to chat with you in a form like this is, is really great. So I appreciate your time. Sure. Cool. Well, I think we'll just go ahead and get started. Should I call you professor or doctor? I could just call me Dean. Okay. <laughs> I was all set to call you professor. Uh, professor is fine. Okay. Was, well, I'll call you professor. I should be here, doctor professor. Okay. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> um, I'd like to introduce you to my co-host, Timothy Rothschild. He's a non-dual shamanic healer. And uh, he accompanies me as my friend in a lot of these programs, myself, uh, a, a documentarian storyteller um, that sits somewhere in the middle of uh, science and, and belief and, and trying to keep my feet on the ground by constantly being pulled deeper into some sort of phenomenon. So he'll be a, a great asset in this conversation. Good. So Dean Radin, PhD, is a chief scientist at the Institute of Noetic Sciences and distinguished professor at the California Institute of Integral, Integral Studies, professor at the California Institute of Integral Studies. He earned an MS in electrical engineering and a PhD in psychology from the University of Illinois. Before joining the research staff at IONS in 2001, Raiden held appointments at AT&T Bell Labs, Princeton University, University of Edinburgh, and SRI International. So many questions for you here tonight, Dr. Dean Raiden. He has given over 500 talks and interviews worldwide, and he is an author or co-author of hundreds of scientific and popular articles, four dozen book chapters, two technical books, and four popular books translated into 15 foreign languages, The Conscious Universe, 
Entangled Minds, Supernormal, and Real Magic. Professor, welcome to Night Drift by Euphemed. Thank you. So, Dean, how would you describe what you do? I study human experiences that suggest that we are not just our brain, or to put it in slightly different terms, from a, a mainstream science perspective today, uh, we are considered machines made of meat. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of evidence suggesting that we are, in fact, machines made of meat. Every time you go to a surgeon and they start carving into you, yeah, it's, it's pretty much meat. Yeah. <laughs> but the question is, is that all we are? And so I'm studying experiences that suggest that we are machines made of meat, but we're also a lot more. Yeah. And so it, it all starts with experience. And then the challenge is, how do we take those experiences into the laboratory, which is mainly what I do, and see, uh, is it a coincidence? Is it a confabulation? Was it made up? Right. Uh, right. And it's not just me doing this. My colleagues around the world have been doing this for a long time, over a century now. And that's why we have a pretty good database at this point suggesting that uh, we are capable of more than our Psych 101 textbooks would admit. Right. Yeah. And so your work, some would describe that it's perhaps at the intersection of spirit and science. With you having a formal scientific education, when was it really that mysticism and magic entered into your work? Well, it's probably always there. But one of, the, one of the things you learn pretty quickly when you're working on any kind of controversial topic is that you don't, you don't mix controversies because <laughs> it, it's explosive to begin with. And you start right. mixing it, it, it becomes super explosive. Sure. So to maintain a, a safe academic approach, uh, some of my colleagues, for example, won't use words like clairvoyance or psychokinetic effects. They've developed uh, euphemisms like anomalous cognition mm. or anomalous perturbation. Yeah. And even remote viewing was, was a euphemism until it went into the vernacular. Sure. So all of this is simply part of the recognition that uh, science, like any other thing that people do, is part of a social construct. And you can't stray too far from what is expected in the, the sociology of your discipline. Otherwise, people will dismiss you. Right. So I decided, uh, I've been in doing this now for like 40 years, and I kind of decided I don't care anymore. Yeah. Like anybody who's seriously looking at psychic phenomena know very well that what we're dealing with are phenomena that in a different context would be called magical. Right. So my last book was basically just pointing out the obvious. Uh, I'm pretty sure some of my colleagues didn't like it very much. Mm. like to 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 bring to the fore something that which is known but we're not supposed to talk about i i think that's a mistake though which is why i went ahead and did it because uh, we're not fooling anybody and why not say what is actually going on so that that's where the connection comes into play when dealing with uh the intersection between as you said it's science spirituality esoteric thought a lot of it is anthropology and, and a whole bunch of other disciplines. It's all one big mishmash looking at the nature of consciousness. Yeah. 
How fascinating. And, you know, you mentioned real magic. You also had super normal. And it was almost as if with the pairing of those books, you took both Eastern and Western esoteric and mystical practices. And, you know, you present scientific research demonstrating their very real effects to its practitioners. So, you know, I'm curious, after years of studying this relationship of real magic, what were some of the most surprising things that you found when integrating these two? Well, the most surprising even to this day is the fact that it's real. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because when anybody goes through a standard Western educational program, only hears about or, or studies magical concepts in entertainment, that's primarily where it's used, saturates entertainment, uh, or we, we learn about it as uh, wishful thinking and even the idea of, uh, of, co- of uh, affirmations and practices that a lot of people do, prayer, all yeah. of that, right. it's kind of dismissed as something that is not quite real. And, and you see this in politics now a lot. Sure. People will dismiss something as magical thinking. Well, yeah, I mean, sometimes the, the effects that we're dealing with are quite small in magnitude. So just because you wish something to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen. Uh, but that doesn't mean it's not real at the same time. Right. And for some reason, the uh, we see this even in the reaction to some of the experimental results that we do. We can show an effect in the laboratory, and maybe it's only 1% or 2% over chance. But you could have very high confidence that even a small effect like that is real. Mm. But I guess if people are not comfortable with statistics, they just don't get it. You know, they, they need the UFO landing on their face in order to see that this <laughs> that something is actually real. And yeah. that's, I mean, that's just wrong. Right, right. A lot of folks really can't discern their own opinion from that in which is peddled out in front of them, right? And this idea, this dogma, right, which is materialism, or, you know, on the other side, frankly, idealism, right? Um, you obviously find yourself somewhere in, in between those two sort of concepts, yeah? Well, as I've said in many talks, you can't throw away materialism because it's just way too successful. Right. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Uh, and you, if you go towards idealism, it doesn't mean that you're throwing away materialism. Mm-hmm. It means what, you've, what science has always done, which is to expand it, right? All of our theories are uh, you, you keep what's good and you expand it. Yeah. And so the parts of materialism that work, we absolutely want to keep, but I think it can be expanded. And the way you expand it is imagining it's a bubble while well, the outside of the bubble has a new layer and that layer is called consciousness. Right. And, by, and I, I usually present this in the form of a pyramid, hierarchies of, of um, disciplines. But the, the concept is the same, that uh, materialism can be seen as a special case of, of a larger, m- more encompassing worldview where consciousness is really the fundamental or at least as best as we can tell at the moment, in which case things like physics and the physical world are encapsulated inside this this bubble of consciousness. Mm. Interesting. Uh, Tim, let's bring you into this conversation as, you know, a non-dual Kabbalist, right? The idea of even something like the third thing, the the Mm -hmm. integration of, you know, two, two different things to make one. It's sort of the similar language that's describing this relationship between, 
materialism, idealism coming together to create something else. So what, what is your impression of some of this relationship? Yeah, well, well, first, and you know, I love the courage that it took to write a book like Real Magic, because, you know, we're living in a time when, um, you know, mysticism and physics is probably one of the more fascinating places to start to explore. And it's almost inevitable that we're going to find real magic. You know, in writing a book like that, you know, you took the magical thinking out of magic and made it something that was much more concrete and real. And it's the truth. And so as a non-dual practitioner, um, just to give you a little bit of framework of what I do, uh, we see the world as nested pairs of opposites. You know, so um, these need each other, you know, light and dark, right and wrong. They need each other. And when we can use our prefrontal lobes in a particular way and hold that kind of thing with our consciousness, uh, a third thing emerges. So this, there's this emergent quality, and that's what we call love, spaciousness, or magic. And there's something that, that you can, first of all, you really have to experience it, which is why people want these statistics so much, because you kind of have to, mm-hmm. you kind of have to be living at the, at, on the edge a little bit. You know, you have to be willing to get into trouble a little bit to do this kind of work. So it, it, it brings up a, a significant amount of resistance, you know? So to, I, I just want to say thank you for, for writing the book and just putting it out there because um, it, it deserves to be shaken up enough so that people can start to say, you know what, let me see if I can experience this myself. Because I, I do this every day. I work with magic every day. Every time I do a healing, I work with you know, people in the United Arab Emirates and, and we connect and, and real magic occurs. And sometimes there are some events that happen where I have to write it down right afterwards because I know my cognitive dissonance is going to prevent me from actually being able to communicate that in the future. So I know at this point, I have my little notebook where I go, oh, this is the notebook that I'm just going to challenge my previous self that's that's witnessed magic. And it's sort of like uh, the awakening state and the sleeping state, you know, how it kind of fades away like a dream sometimes, you know, kind of lends, it lends itself to so many different implications and, and questions as to how we're built to be here and why our world is limited in this way to survive. You know, that's why we cling to materialism, that sort of stuff. But then at the same time, you see how much trouble we're getting into in terms of hanging on to the old ways and not acknowledging the truth that you're bringing forward and how much that can change as an emerging quality. How can tra- it, it has to transform whatever it touches. That's the nature of magic. Am I right? Yeah, that is, that's certainly one of the, one of the consequences of it. Yeah. Consequences. Yeah. Yeah. So the as a talking though in in the book in real magic is uh, what would happen if tomorrow everybody suddenly believed in magic? Well, most do anyway. They they may not be practicing it. I mean, it takes a certain degree of of skill and practice in order to be able to enter the right states. But if everybody started to to gain a certain amount of talent, at least in the short term, it would be a disaster. Mm. Because you, I mean, you can imagine that every every small magical act is putting a little bit of churn into the physical world. If you now have seven point five churnings going on, uh, it, it would quickly destroy everything, because we're we're not mature enough as a species to be able to handle that kind of power. It's like like giving every baby a small atomic bomb to play with. That's not a good idea right now. <laughs> so a case can be made that. Uh, the people are talented. Some people are talented in, in these domains and maybe we call them healers or we call them something successful business people, that sort of thing. Right. Uh, 
And maybe it's not such a bad idea that uh, for the time being, these kinds of ideas stay out on the periphery. So I, I feel, I feel pulled, pushed and pulled in this sense. I, I want to, I, I write a book like Real Magic because I think it's interesting, right? I mean, a lot of people sort of believe in this stuff anyway, and it says, well, yeah, there's good reason to believe it, but it's not, I don't necessarily want everyone to start going ahead and start using it. Yeah. For reasons that I just said. Wow. It's a, that's a really good point. I'm sorry, Jim. I just, because that's, that's how I got into healing work to begin with, because I realized the power in exploring this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I went, I went paranormal, found consciousness at the base of it. And then I realized, oh, wow, I got work to do on myself. If I'm actually going to have a healthy relationship with reality, that includes this, you know, so I, I, I couldn't agree more. So look at the flip side of healing is that if you're able to heal somebody from a distance, you're able to harm them too. Right. And, and of course, that immediately raises all of the old fears about magic because the moment that you can mentally start manipulating the physical world in any form, then you immediately run up against moral and ethical issues. Like who are you to decide what you're going to do? Even healing somebody at a distance without their explicit permission in a traditional sense, is black magic. Absolutely. It's a big, it's a big no-no. So the, this immediately raises all of the questions about, well, it's not exactly black magic, it's gray magic. You know, it's white with a little bit of other color in it. It's, well, <laughs> how, how do we know that? We, we need a, a super magician out there who's already gone through this several thousand times right. to actually be able to, to advise us on, on, how, on what to do with these kinds of ideas. That, that's also what I meant then by saying that our species is too immature. And, and so if someday the, the aliens land, not only will they be very far advanced from us in a technological perspective, but they should, almost certainly will be in a consciousness way as well. Mm. And so I, I'm looking forward maybe someday uh, to, to have somebody show up saying, oh, no, this is, this is what, how you should be using this. And, and there may be the few historical cases uh, where that did happen. You know, did Jesus and Buddha and a few others like that have tried to teach people, and we know what happened to them. So, uh, again, maybe we're not ready yet. <laughs> Can I ask, have you had any personal experiences with people that have had, you know, pretty powerful magical abilities or unexplained um, talents in that, in, you know, in the realm that we're discussing? I would say not so much magical, but I would cast it more in terms of psychic. So I know a number of very talented psychics. Absolutely. Uh, they, I would guess most of them don't think of it in terms of magic. They, they are simply naturally talented and they're able to do a variety of things. Uh, and magic, at least in the vernacular, is usually thought of as psychokinetic effects or in a broader sense, the ability to manipulate destiny. And, and so in that domain, I, I haven't met anybody who's really talented. Mm-hmm. Virtually all the people I know who are really good are good at perceptual psychic abilities. So that still fits in part of magical practice. It's divination. Uh, but on the spellcasting side, no. Yeah. In my tradition, we consider it the awakening human. You know, we're all built a particular way. And as we continue to awaken, some of us uh, are predisposed to doing some, some of this more far out stuff. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fascinating. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You know, uh, we talk about consciousness perhaps as a bubble that surrounds all of this and a bubble that perhaps even connects us all to some degree, right? Uh, And uh, Professor, I had the damnedest dream this morning. And I think it's a good way to just segue to a question about this connectedness and how, you know, if potentially other individuals are more prone to more connectedness rather than not. So I had this dream this morning that I was on the top of a plank of wood floating in the ocean and I was being attacked by a great white shark. I never think of sharks, yet this was the dream. And not an hour ago, I get a text from my father, who is an artist with a photo. And it was of a commission piece of something he's never painted before. And it was a great white shark. So this is just one of many of these small, if you want to call them synchronicities that happen to myself and anyone else that is really deeply engaged in this sort of exploration. But I often wonder, you know, from the data and experiments that you've conducted, does anything suggest that family members or friends or loved ones are more connected consciously than, than others? Yes, in, uh, in the classic telepathy test, the Gonsfeld telepathy test, uh, yeah, the, chance, or the, the chance hit rate is 25% because you, know, you have to select one of four pictures. Yeah. Uh, family members and people who describe having had telepathic experiences with friends, they, they will hit between 50 and 75%. Wow. Whereas unselected college sophomores even strangers will get around 32%. So what this tells us is that, yeah, the relationship is important, uh, but even people who don't ever report anything telepathic at all, and may not even know each other before the experiment, they still do better than chance. So one of the interpretations of this is maybe there's a genetic connection, maybe emotions are kind of a gravitational pull, which is why lovers typically are, are quite good at these kinds of tests. Uh, and and maybe it's even simpler than that. Maybe it's that for people who you have close emotional connections to, a portion of your awareness is always listening to them, whether they're near or not. And so I use this metaphor of it's as though we're, we're carrying around uh, a walkie-talkie with an open mic constantly. And so even though you're normally not aware of it, it's as though you're in a giant party and everybody's talking at the same time. And every so often you hear your name, even through all of the noise. Why? Because there's a portion of you who is constantly paying attention to that. So if you have the open mic to everything in the universe, a little piece of you is going to be paying attention to somebody who you particularly want to pay attention to. And so if your dad is, is doing something, uh, that's maybe a little bit out of the ordinary for him, you'll pick it up because you're listening to it. 
So I don't know which one of those is the right explanation, but all of them could be. Right. I, I agree. I, th- I think it's a little bit of all of it, you know, because even when you talk about relationship, you can even hold that parallel to say something like focused intention. Right? If I have a focused intention to pick up on something, I'm tuning myself to start to pick up on it more and more over time. Right? So we all do this for good or bad things. You know? And I just want to add one more thing to the list. Um, I became psychically pre- precocious um, from trauma as a child, actually. I needed to develop that sense to be able to feel into particular spaces mm-hmm. in order to find out if something was coming, you know, it was particularly dangerous, you know, and uh, later on it went away. And then as I got into more of the, what I was doing, it, it started to come back. So I started to realize that there's, there's a relationship to this too. You know, the human design is built to sense things, not only with their brain, which, which you measure, but also with all of their body. You know, every cell has, is almost like a brain in itself. Yeah. The, the, uh, the re- anecdotal reports anyway, is pretty strong that uh, early childhood trauma, is especially having to do with one's personal safety, is something that, that shapes your attention to pay, uh, to pay attention essentially in a clairvoyant or precognitive way. And so a lot of adults are fortunate to lose that after time because they're no longer in danger, but you can, you can relearn it. Because anything you learned once, you can come back under the right circumstances. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, A listener, Lucy, has this to say, my sister and I joke that we're brain twins. Do you think that works with people close to you that have died too? Well, the siblings, siblings might, uh, might partially be that you're simply attuned to the other person, especially if they're pretty close in age. Uh, it might also be genetics. And the reason I'm mentioning genetics is because one of the studies that we've been doing now is uh, we call it genes. We're looking at people in families who uh, report psychic phenomena either at the sibling level or at the parent level, sometimes the grandparents. And we've been testing their DNA to see if there is something different than what you see in the normal population. Mm. The short answer is yeah. There is something different. And, and so it's possible that, uh, especially for, like, like Lucy is talking about brain twins, they might both have similar DNA, which acts in, in a metaphorical way, like an antenna. Yeah. They have tuned antennas. And so uh, that combined with similar life events, I mean, we're talking about, like, this is completely conventional, but it'll still work that if two people grow up together, they're going to have a huge amount of overlapping memory. So if one person gravitates towards something, anything, and the other person will likely gravitate towards that as well. So that's not psychic. It's simply a matter of, of shared memory. But you take that and you take a little bit of, of psychic awareness too, and you could have people who are just saturated with synchronicities all the time. Mm. Yeah, wow. You really see how this is a movement towards complexity the more that you explore this. And people can cling to each answer depending on their, well, whatever reality they prefer to live in that makes them safe and happy. Yeah. In, any, in every discipline, any discipline, the more you learn about the discipline, the more you realize what you don't know. Right? So if somebody has a very, very firm opinion about something but hasn't studied it for 30 or 40 years, I don't trust that opinion very much <laughs> because it's invariably, the, the more you start learning about something, the very first thing that you begin to recognize is what you actually did not know before. 
So there's this phrase that Terence McKenna used to say, which I like, which was, as the bonfires of knowledge burn brighter, the darkness is revealed to our startled eyes. Yeah. Right? So if you're around a tiny little bonfire, you can't see how much darkness there is. You need a pretty big bonfire to suddenly realize, holy crap, I'm in a huge amount of ignorance here. But it, it takes some knowledge in order to even realize that. Yeah. Wow. Well, I know I've got quite the bonfire going over on this beach. But, um, <laughs> let's let's talk a little bit more about side genes, if you can. Is this the study? I, I think I saw in an interview or or read something that was written on the IONS page about an experiment that potentially had uh, some sort of physical link to a, a chemical, perhaps that heightened uh, psi ability. Is this the same experiment or or, or something else? Uh, this the, a psytropic is something that this could lead to. So we wow. don't have that yet. But uh, once you find that there's uh, a, a genetic sequence that you want to manipulate, like you, you do an epigenetic manipulation to turn it down, to knock it off, to turn it up, and so on, there's lots of things you can do to start pushing uh, the epigenetics. Wow. So I think it's... We, we don't know at this point whether everyone has this particular sequence. It's called an intron sequence. It's not coding DNA. It's part of the non-coding. So it used to be called junk DNA because nobody knew what it did. Well, now we're beginning to learn it does all kinds of very important things. And one of, the, one of those things seems to be that it is involved in some way in people who are simply much more sensitive. And, of course, the flip side of this is Whenever you have a, a genetic difference, there's often a, oftentimes a morphological difference that goes along with it. That the shape, some shape of you, some process within you is going to be different. Hmm. And so we, we started looking into this uh, with uh, a professor at Stanford who, who told me about a morphological difference in the brain, the, the structure called the caudate, uh, in which... Some people who have exceptional experiences, whether it's psychic or mediumistic or uh, contact with aliens, all kinds of very strange stuff, they have a similarity in that a portion of their brain is not like the average person's. Mm. So he was the one who suggested to me that maybe what we're dealing with here is they're not lesions, you know, there's not tumors, it's, it's, uh, it's bilateral, it shows up in certain people who have these experiences and not in other people. So maybe it's uh, it's either a mutation or a branch of humanity that's different in some way. Wow! Uh, but so they have it. So he said there should be a genetic sequence that w- that will reflect that. And so that's what we've been looking for, and that's what we think we found. What a mic drop, Professor! <laughs> well, it raises all kinds of interesting questions. You know that. It, it, when you find a genetic sequence that shows a, an effect like that, it is almost certainly not the only thing. It's, it becomes a, a biomarker. It's, it's a biomarker. So way back when, before either of you were probably born, <laughs> as they're doing this sort of research for the U.S. government, and, and our job was psychic spying, and we, we were uh, trying to figure out why are the people we're working with so talented, because we wanted to find others who are like that. So at the time, and this is now the mid-80s, uh, we put them through every, every test we could possibly think of. 
all the psychological tests and IQ tests and physiological tests and medical tests, and we found nothing. We could find no, nothing that, that was able to discriminate between them and the average person on the street. Hmm. Well, we have lots of new tools now, including genetic tools, and that's where we were beginning to see something. And I also suspect then that high-resolution MRIs will, will show something. Uh, there's lots of things like you could look at connectome, the, the regions of the brain, how the fibers connect. That's showing something. Uh, there are other, other methods that are used now for neuroimaging that are showing differences for people with these exceptional abilities. At this point, uh, I think what it's showing us is that when we think of the, 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 the quote, normal population as a normal curve right? Almost anything you can think of, it's had sort of a normal curve. Sure. Every normal curve is going to have people out at the five and six sigma level. They're, they're not going to look normal. And it's not, it's not difficult to find them. You just go to any Olympic village and those people are way out on the edge. Yeah. Right. right? So there's, there are people among us who, by comparison to prototypical Joe six pack on the street are, are mutants. Mm-hmm. They're they're like not even human. Right. They're, they're so yeah. far away, but they're still human. They're just a, a variant, and I suspect then that this is the same is true for people who are super psychics, that they're perfectly human except they have something else that that makes them have talents that the normal person just simply wouldn't have. That said, because we can take college sophomores and put them through psi experiments and get results, everyone has the capacity to some extent. Everyone can play tennis a little bit, but not everybody's going to be a tennis champ. Mm. So people ask me all the time, how, how can I train myself so I become Harry Potter? If, and the, the answer is, if, if you have to ask that question, you're not going to be Harry Potter. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, let's go back in time for a second, just because I'm so interested in this period of time. And in the 1980s, when you were doing this research, was was that a part of SRI and, and that group of folks? Yes. Okay. And at that time, you know, there was money flowing through the system with SRI to, to basically combat whatever the Russians were cooking up, correct? Is, would that be a dumb, basic way to kind of qualify it? No, I would say at the time we suspected that the Russians and the Chinese, at least, were doing something like we were, but we didn't know for sure. Yeah. And at that time, could you even imagine what it would look like if we had the technological capabilities that we have now? What would, what would that look like between the various countries and sides that were developing these things? Well, I asked my bosses at one point when we were engaged in trying to at least find ways of, of selecting people. I said, what, what if we were, if, if somehow we had a breakthrough and we were able to make super psychics on demand, what would happen to that information? And the immediate response was it would disappear and you'd never be able to talk about it. Wow. And, and you know, and kind of discouraging. I'm, I'm in this as a scientist. I'm, I'm interested in understanding the nature of reality. And I also was struck by the, the strange... Uh, juxtaposition or almost like a schizophrenic split that would happen because we're engaged, at least within that building, we're engaged in a process that made secrets impossible to keep. 
Mm-hmm. Right? You, you, I mean, you can f- float into a, a safe on the other side of the planet and look inside it with your mind. So secret, there is no secret anywhere. Right. And yet, this would become so secret, the, the, the idea of making someone like that, that it would never see the light of day. And I thought, well, that's, I don't know if I can live with that. That doesn't sound right. <laughs> right. But nevertheless, th- this is true not just for the project I was working on, but a lot of projects. Sure. That's why you have conspiracy theories about we have alien technology that could solve the energy problems overnight, and yet it's not being revealed, and why is that? And I don't know. Sure. It's almost a version of noise in itself, isn't it? You know, you look at the state of, you know, what's happening with UFO research and UAP and and the alleged, you know, sort of documents that have disappeared and, you know, the hands of, uh, you know, sort of contractors, government contractors or secret defense department, you know, institutions. And it's it, it, it turns into its own version of noise that seems to pollute whatever message could be there. Yeah. Well, a lot of that is planned. Yeah. Right. I mean, disinformation is a real thing. Yeah. And I do recall at the time that inside the building we were working at, this stuff was quite real and it was being useful. Mm-hmm. Outside the building, it was either ridiculed or just dismissed. And, and I eventually understood why that was, that it, uh, if you have a secret weapon of some, time, of some type, then there's rumors about it, and there were at the time. The best possible thing you can do to keep that, that weapon viable is for everyone to think it's nonsense. Yeah. Right. And so, I mean, it took a while for me to realize, well, there's such a strong difference between what is openly admitted within the scientific community and what is actually going on. And, and it's, it's a studied effect. It's, it's a particular, it's just specifically designed to deflect attention. Yeah. In fact, that's one of the, because you can't keep secrets at all, if you have a really good clairvoyant, they could find out anything. The, the only, we are tasked actually with figuring out ways of, of blocking it. Like if you have something really secret, how, what do you need to put it in so that a clairvoyant can't see it? And the answer was, you can't. It, mm. If it exists anywhere, it's going to be able to be seen. But what you can do is use the equivalent of camouflage. You can put something near it that is uh, more attractive to the psychic eye than the thing itself. So if you have a piece of paper which has a code word on it, what you put next to it is a, is a jar of liquid nitrogen or something else, something which is, is very strange and would attract the psychic eye and similar to the way it would attract your own eye. And in that way, it's hidden in plain sight. And so that more or less would work. Yeah, wow, fascinating. Interesting. You know, there's, <laughs> there's always that, that push and pull or that tension, you know, between when we're trying to bring something into the world and is the world ready for this? And then all the powers that are doing the same. Um, was that a part of your inspiration to write something like Real Magic or to just kind of say, screw it? I don't want to deal with this kind of, I don't know if it's hypocrisy. I don't know if it's the slowness of it. Cause I know you respect the power of this, this work and this level of reality. So I'm um, not sure what my question is. is, is, was that a part of what inspired you? Part of it was uh, an intellectual exercise because uh, Jim has it right that the book on supernormal was about the Eastern esoteric traditions. And so, I mean, uh, I've done meditation for many years and I did yoga for a while. And I was just, uh, I I found it interesting that the yogic tradition is is explicitly written in the yoga sutras 
about all kinds of interesting psychic abilities. They just don't call it that. And so I wrote that because of the, the, the split, especially in Western style yoga, which is relatively new, uh, that most people don't even realize what it's about. It, it becomes uh, spiritualized aerobics, basically. And there's nothing wrong with that, but it's, it's not what it was, it was for, in a sense. So I wrote that just to kind of get it out of my head. And then I, once I did that, I realized, well, there's, there's an equivalent in the Western world. While a yogi would call it the cities, a Western esoteric person will call it magic. It's, it's the same thing. So I just, I wanted to get that out of my head too. This is generally why I write books in the first place. Because they have <laughs> something rattling around in there and I haven't, yeah, and sure. I don't see other books talking about it. So it's encouraging. Okay, get it out. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right on. How interesting. Um, so let's talk a little bit first about the Institute of Noetic Sciences, because for as much as we can talk about, you know, these government uh, programs and these, you know, sort of institutions where information leaves and, and findings are gone and you can't tell anyone. What I find fascinating about uh, the Institute of Noetic Sciences is that it's very interactive, that you have experiments going all the time where, you know, IONS actually offers many ways for people to be involved. And I, I don't hear that enough really i don't think in the messaging because once i got lost in the web page there and discovered how many different sort of events and even online zoom groups that people can be a part of whether it's meditation or actually participating in experiments it kind of blew my mind with what is actually offered there so you know i wonder what are some of your favorite ways for people to be involved with things at ions well, it's very different in the pandemic era than yeah, it was before. Sure yeah. Uh, we have significantly, like everyone else, uh, expanded our online offerings, most of which are webinars and uh, groups of interest groups and that sort of thing. So that will continue. I mean, they've been very, very successful. And, and we've been forced to do that, but it's been so successful that I don't think we're going to go significantly back in the other direction. Yeah, right. Right. So we, we have a retreat center in Sonoma County in California. Uh, and we do definitely want to get that going again when it's safe to do it. But in, in the meantime, we're doing kind of similar things online. Yeah. And, and especially given that there's so many people looking for something to do, that's not just sitting in front of the TV. <laughs> well, there's, there are interactive things that people can do now. Yeah. Right. I want to correct one thing, though, that you said that the uh, in classified projects, things kind of float away, at least when it comes to the Stargate program, that there, there are four gigantic albums uh, or, or volumes available now, which, which does actually publish the majority of what went on there, yeah. both in terms of the, the research, the reports, the memos, the people involved, all of that. So it's McFarland Press that publishes the Stargate archives. And there are four fat, large size books that, that pretty much cover the whole thing. Oh, that's fantastic. I'll cool. find that and I'll link it in the show notes for people to check out and for me to personally buy. I mean, I'm, I'm completely fascinated by that topic. You know, sitting on my desk right now is Annie Jacobson's work phenomena kind of detailing some of the the uh, origins of SRI and what was going on there in the remote viewing program. Uh, so yeah, uh, I think it's great that things are coming to light and that people have access. But 
I think what you guys do really special at the Institute of Noetic Sciences is bring people to the table. You know what I mean? And, and that's, that's such a big difference and, you know, really powerful, I think. Well, and in some sense, yes, I feel very fortunate to be able to work there. And, and we're all working hard at what we're doing. At the, on the other side, though, it's, it's a pity, in a sense, that it is basically us and a handful of other organizations in the world yeah. who are doing this. Right. And it's not because of lack of interest. There are plenty of people in places who I get emails all the time from students who want to do their dissertation, they want to get a master's degree, they want to do something. Yeah. And I have to be realistic and say, well, there's there's like three jobs in the world. So if you're independently wealthy, go for it. You know, right. this is the best thing ever. But we live in a, a strange place where uh, even though there's a the world is saturated with interest in these topics, there's almost no funding for it. Yeah. And so it's like, especially for students going on for advanced degrees, you know, I'm not going to tell somebody not to follow their passion, but I do have to tell them that when they when they finish that, they have to be prepared for uh, for working in a place where they're going to say, "Do you want fries with that?" Right. Yeah. Because that's I mean that that's what could end up happening, and that's a pity. So my usual advice is, somebody is really passionate about these topics, especially as a student, I would say get a traditional degree from a traditional place and then get a job. And then you can do whatever you want. Yeah. And so at that point, you'll have enough skills, if, whether you're interested in science or scholarship, it doesn't really matter. But you'll have skills that you can be, begin to bring to bear on these topics. And then you make yourself known to the few people in, in places in the world where there are jobs. And eventually there'll be an opening and that's how you, you get into the game, essentially. We'll be right back with more with Dr. Dean Radin here on Night Drift, presented by Euphemet. Follow Euphemet on Spotify and subscribe on iTunes to receive new episodes of Night Drift automatically and gain access to all of our past episodes. From the heart of Cascadia and the edge of the world, Euphemet presents Night Drift with Jim Perry. Let's go back a little bit and talk about an experiment that you did that, you know, in all honesty, you, you know, please entertain us. You might even be a little winded about talking about the original version of this because I've, I've certainly heard you describe it seemingly hundreds of times. But for my listeners who may be uninitiated, perhaps you'll grant us an explanation and a description of the Global Consciousness Project, the original, and, and what that was and what the work you were doing. So for 50 years or so, uh, people have been using random number generators to uh, as a target for mind-matter interaction experiments. And this, this partially came about because earlier studies were trying to use physical objects that didn't move around very much. Like it could be a die, but just a static die. You put down a die and you ask somebody, okay, shove this with, with some kind of a telekinetic something or other. There, there was like two cases that I know of that are credible where people are able to do that. Hmm. And it always involves so much energy. I'm thinking of people like uh, Nina Polagina and a few others 
who were able to do it, but it took so much energy that it it almost didn't even seem like this. Is, this doesn't seem like a mind thing. It seems more like some people are ma- able to make themselves into electric eels and produce a very very strong uh, electrostatic effects mm. simply by pushing electrolytes around in the body, something like that. Mm. So they're able to do it, but the means by which they were doing it did not look, at least to me, like this is a, a psychokinetic thing. Wow. Or like a, like some kind of physical something happening. Yeah. So people then uh, gravitated, experimentalists gravitated to something that was much, much easier to influence, namely something which, which you, metaphorically is like on a knife edge. Like it's ready to fall one way or the other. The amount of force required to make that happen could be infinitesimal. So it's, you need almost nothing. And even better, maybe it's a quantum event because quantum events are fundamentally random. We have no idea why a photon decides to go through or bounce off a half-silvered mirror. Mm. Something, I mean, presumably there's some reason. From a quantum perspective, there is no reason. It is a-causal, which, which sort of offends our sensibilities, but nevertheless, that's, that's what it says. It, it just does it for some reason. So you use that as a target. You say, okay, I don't want you to bounce off the mirror. I want you to go through. Whatever force or information or whatever it is, just do that. So this led to electronic random number generators, 50 years of experiments with individuals trying to influence those generators. And it works to a small degree. So then people started getting clever and saying, well, what if you had two random number generators, one of which was visible and you're getting feedback on your performance and then another one, like right next to it, that you weren't, you didn't even know was there, as a control, because maybe you like you can influence this one, and then that one would be the control, and that would be like a perfect experiment, and especially if you can blindly switch from one to the other. So those experiments were were going on. These were hidden random generators, uh, and oftentimes you'd find that both of them were influenced. So we we're thinking, well, there's like something wrong with our idea about a control in this. The other thing that we started to show up is you, you do a whole bunch of experiments where you're intentionally trying to aim at something and push it mentally. And you'd see that. And then you relax and say, okay, now we're going to let it run by itself as a control and we're going to do something else. And then when you come back and look at the data, the, the, and you plot it as like a, a distribution, like a bell-shaped curve, when you're trying to push something, you get a flattening of the curve. As soon as you relax, and you direct your attention somewhere else, you get a squishing of the curve. So it's almost as though there's, it's trying to maintain some kind of a balance between mentally pushing and then relaxing or the other way around. But there's some kind of flexibility to space-time, say. So this led uh, Roger Nelson at Princeton, uh, which is where I met him, he got the idea that maybe what's going on here, or at least the, the operative factor, is not intention, but simply attention. Mm. Right? You, in order to intend, you have to have some attention, but not the other way around. You could have attention without any in, intention. So he said, well, maybe what's happening in the experiments is you're either attending toward or you're not attending toward. And, and that alone is enough to change a system because attending toward might cause a negentropic effect. So negentropy is a degeneration of order. Mm-hmm. So this kind of leads to a, a metaphor of mind and matter, like two sides of the same coin. Mm-hmm. 
they're, they're both fundamental, but, and they're both tightly coupled, like two sides of a coin. So if one side of the coin becomes highly coherent, highly ordered, the other side has to become highly co coherent and ordered as well. So the, the experiment then becomes, uh, you take a random number generator, which is the mind, the matter side of the coin, and you stick that into an environment of, of people meditating or dancing or doing something, something that's coherent. And then you see what happens to the random generator. So that we did this like a hundred tests in different environments. We found that when high mental coherence occurred in these small groups, that you would find a corresponding degree of order appearing. Spontaneous order would appear in the random number generators and you can detect it immediately because uh, statistically you can just see it happening. You can see order occurring. So we, we did those experiments for years. And then uh, I think the, th the thing that sparked the GCP, as we call it, was the funeral of Princess Diana. Because we knew that that was going to attract a lot of attention around the world. We knew when it was going to take place. Sure. And we asked uh, about 10 of our buddies around the world who had random number generators to run it before, during, and after. And then we consolidated all the data afterwards. And sure enough, we found what looked like a global effect because there's in many countries. So we thought uh, this is really nice, except it took a lot of effort to get everybody to start running their generators. And all, not only that, the formats of the data was somewhat different and they're just, you, you know, you don't want to do this every time there's something coming up. So Roger uh, got the idea to create a, a worldwide network that was running all the time. So at, the, at its peak, it had about 70 to 75 random generators running in cities around the world and uploading data every five minutes to a server at Princeton. Mm -hmm. It's still running. It's been going for 23 years. Uh, and the formal part of the experiment was defining an event. Uh, and there's two ways you can do this. One is you know that uh, the Olympics opening ceremony is coming up. And so you can define in advance that on this day, uh, at this time, and for X amount of hours, that's the event we'll formally define. And then after it takes place, then you look at that data and you say, well, did this conform to chance or not? So that's all, all of your formal tests are a priori. You don't look at the data first, you look at it afterwards. On something like 9-11 or a, any kind of unexpected effect, before you look at the data, you define what you're going to look at. And then and you define it, and then you look at the data. So 500 events like that took place over a course of a little less than 20 years, and that became the formal experiment. And so the, the overall results was uh, easily expressed in terms of sigma, how many standard errors away from chance, and it's 7.3 sigma. So 7.3 sigma is associated with odds against chance of 3 trillion to 1. So... What this means is, if we were to do the same experiment three trillion times, we would get a result as as big as what we saw, or maybe bigger. Yeah. But considering that it took twenty years to do that, you need to have twenty years times three trillion yeah. <laughs> times in order to be able to do this, and that's way longer than the age of the universe. Yeah. So right. you can provide a, an argument then that this was not a chance outcome. It looks as though consciousness at a mass scale 
still follows this idea of, of uh, at least a metaphor of two sides of the same coin. Mind and matter are both fundamental in some way, and they influence each other. So the other way of thinking of this, though, is that uh, if, if the physical world becomes highly ordered in some way, and there are times where that might happen, then we should see a corresponding effect in, in uh, at least the minds of people, which would be reflected by their behavior. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the, the, the effects that happen most often at a large scale are not orderly in a physical sense, but disorderly earthquakes, riots, that sort of thing. Uh, and so, and even riots are not right because it's a human thing. So large scale events generally don't, physical events are hard to find that are somehow just magically incredibly orderly. So it's hard to test that side of the equation, but on the mind side, you can test it easily. Yeah. So we're now working on GCP2. So GCP2 is taking advantage of technology that wasn't around when we first developed this thing because it's 23 years ago. Yeah. GCP2, uh, we were originally thinking of making as an Internet of Things so that you'd, you'd buy a little thing and it would just attach to Wi-Fi automatically and you know, you'd don't pay any attention to it. And it would send up data all the time. We kind of decided that, that we could do that, but uh, it was not easy because even in the Internet of Things, they're not really designed to attach automatically, hmm. right? You don't want, you, you don't want your internet of thing, things to automatically attach to your neighbor's Wi-Fi because it doesn't know their password. Right. In fact, it doesn't know your password. Yeah. In fact, you, you, you take the thing home, you have some kind of a gizmo and you have to plug it in with USB and you have to tell it and teach it and stuff. You figure, nobody's going to want to do that, even for GCP2. So instead, we're making a little device that probably will be about this, this big little thing, which you'll plug into your router because every, everybody has a router. They just plug it directly into the internet. Mm-hmm. You, you bypass all of the difficulties, yeah. the internet of things. Internet of things also is susceptible to hacking more easily than plugging it in. Sure. So uh, we're, we will record random bits, but we're also going to record random noise directly. Mm. Because one of the problems that we found with the GCP is that when you take a commercial random number generator, in order to make sure that the output is impervious to, to the environment, you have to do a logical XOR. You do an exclusive OR on the output of it, so which decouples it from the environment. Okay. So the, we know that the data we're getting is really, really good. It's not caused by things like electrical shorts and stuff. Mm-hmm. It's caused by something else. The problem is you can't reverse engineer why you get an effect. Mm. We have a seven sigma effect. That's a big effect. Right. We, we don't know what caused it. We don't, we don't even, we, like, we can't go backwards through the device. You can't go backwards through a logical gate in order to find out what happened to the noise. Yeah. So the past five years or so now, we've been, we, we built our own device, which we call a quantum noise generator, which is recording the noise directly. Wow. And we digitize it and we end up with gobs of data as a result because we're, sure. we started out with 40 kilohertz digitizing, which just is way, way too much. Yeah. We narrowed it down to one kilohertz per sample per second, mm-hmm. one kilohertz per second with 16 to 32 parallel channels. Wow. So like a box. Yeah. So we get a huge amount of, of quantum noise out of this thing. And 
to give one example, I think, as I mentioned in, in Real Magic, we used that thing during the 2016 presidential election. And that because you have 16 parallel channels, I forget if there are 16 or 32 at that time, one or the other. So you can do a different kinds of analyses that you can't really do very well with, uh, with random bits. And I developed this space-time metric. I was looking at autocorrelations of noise through time hmm. and what's called mutual information, which is uh, similarity in space. Because hmm. you know, it's a box that's only about that big, but you can still look for spatial connections. Sure. And you can combine both measures to give you, you uh, the equivalent of a... Uh, a space-time metric that is looking at the fabric of, of entropy, right? So this is an informational measure of, of reality, but yeah. just like, uh, like space-time can be uh, distorted by gravity, it looks like informational space can be distorted by things as well. Right. So as I reported in the book, uh, right around the time when the, the 2016 election was called, it was a very unexpected event. And there was a huge effect, which looked metaphorically very much like a disturbance in the force. Mm -hmm. That's why we, we had kind of designed it to be able to look for those kinds of ripples. Yeah. So by having that kind of capacity that is worldwide with thousands of these devices, not just 70, it gives us both a new kind of way of measuring what's going on, but more importantly, just as you would find with an EEG, if you want to find what's going on inside the head, but you only have three electrodes, good luck. It's not going to happen. Right. If you have 128 electrodes, you can do source localization. You can figure out what's going on deep in the brain just by looking at what's happening to all the electrodes. Sure. Well, if we have several thousand of these new types of generators around the world, we will be able to pinpoint, probably not like a pin, but at least more localize in a much better way what's going on and where it's happening which, which probably quickly covers the world, but we think that the covering of the world happens because of media yeah. coverage. Mm. But maybe not. I mean, we, we don't know. It would be really cool if we were able to say, we see an earthquake happening here, not because we're picking up seismic stuff, but because everybody's freaking out yeah. there. We get a huge consciousness hit, and then we see it kind of ripple out around the world as the earthquake information, the news, is covered. Sure. At this point, I mean, this is all speculation. We don't know what's going to yeah, happen. Well, it's, a, it's a Philip K. Dick novel is what it is, Professor. <laughs> yeah, it could be. Yeah. And so part of, the, part of what we want to do here, and I don't know if we'll be able to do it, is to put some of them in space, put them in orbit, and put other ones uh, under the ocean, at least 300 meters under the ocean, and some in submarines and some elsewhere. And the, the reason is that we want to produce the best kind of shielding and distance that we can manage because we don't know if something big happens on earth, maybe you can't pick it up in space right. or maybe you can, you know, we, right. we don't know yet, but that these are the kinds of questions that we'll be able to answer. Oh, it's fascinating. I bet you and your team are absolutely excited about this potential to restart it in a big way like this. Yeah. Well, we've been thinking about it for a long time. Uh, part of it is, is that every time we came up with something, it would have cost too much to build it. Sure. But, but now you, you can make, um, I mean, if you really wanted to, you can make this in, into something much, much faster and better than an iPhone. Sure. Which would cost a lot. 
But if you're making a relatively simple circuit, which is what we're doing, this the device will cost $100 or less. Yeah. And at that price point, we'll, we'll just sell them at cost. And to sell a few thousand of them, we, we wouldn't buy that many, but we could sell them at cost and people would probably buy them. So that, that's, that's the plan. Well, it comes down to like balancing and budgeting manpower as well, right? Because I, I do, I understand that uh, for a period of time you were experimenting or, or thinking of the idea of doing something with mobile phones and, 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 and some sort, but the sheer amount of data that, that you could be sort of swamped with in a situation like that could be completely unmanageable, right? So in this situation, you have just enough, you think, to be able to give you the data that you can actually interpret and read through. We're still going to get a, a huge amount of data. Yeah. <laughs> but so the, the difference is that the uh, the microprocessors that will be in each device, we can upload algorithms into it. So we can do a lot of processing on the device itself. And then that's brilliant. the trickle uh, that's coming up. And then if we decide we want a different algorithm, we can, we can do that too. Yeah. So initially, we're going to take in everything. So we'll be able to learn what the nature of the data is. Eventually, we're going to we'll upload algorithms that say, well, it, it looks like all we need is this, and then we'll stick with that. So then this is, we'd, we'd actually rather not do that. We'd rather record all of it raw, but we could end up with a terabyte a, a day, and yeah, the, right. you know, it just costs too much. Right. Eventually that, I mean, 20 years hence, then terabyte will be like nothing. So right. you will be able to do that in some future GCP3. Yeah, GCP3 or something. Yeah, when, when we have, uh, you know, quantum computers at the Wahoo, right, that may be able to manage some of this perhaps, or, yeah. you know, maybe AI or something that is now a part of Noetic. Noetic well, AI. Yeah, so we'll, we'll be using machine learning for sure, even in GCP2. Yeah. I mean, just, just as a matter of dealing with the big data. Yeah. That's so fascinating. I'm so excited for you, Professor. Tim, I just, please. Real quick, yeah, I just, I'm thinking about, I'm, I'm just, I'm taking in what you're saying here and I'm thinking about how. Um, One second, know. Tim, just, to, I'm sorry, Tim. Uh, it's past eight o'clock. Are you still okay, professor? Yeah, for five minutes, 10 minutes. You for five minutes, five, 10 minutes. Okay, yeah. great. Thank you. Sorry, Tim, go ahead. Yeah, sure. I, so I'm thinking about how, you know, things are, you know, two sides of the same coin. So you've got entropy and then you've got, as you call it, um, negatropic activity. I learned it as anti-entropic. Yeah, negatropy. Negentropy. So, um, any any ideas as to what is actually causing that? Yeah, I'm thinking in terms of you know how mind and matter are connected. In terms of you know as we're you know we're born, we start falling apart. But then there's also this this creative aspect. You know, as we grow older, we become more wise. You know, we have a different, more intimate relationship, hopefully, with reality. You know, so there's this. And this this other force that's that's taking place, and I can't help but think about creativity and those sorts of things. So, you know, something that's that's quite unique to humankind. So, I'm, actually, there's a couple questions here. You know, is there something that you know can animals affect this to the same extent that humans can, or is it more of like a human thing? Um, and what are your suspicions as to what is actually causing this? You know, the disruptions in the force. It's probably not human centric. So there have been studies with animals and plants, even. Uh, and it, it looks as though if there is a need, there's a motivation and a need, then uh, a living system can manipulate the physical world to some degree to provide that need. Hmm. So it looks like we call it in, intention and motivation, but there are similar things that occur in other living systems. 
that they just don't have those names because trees don't talk. But we kind of suspect that trees will respond to consciousness because they have their own kind of consciousness. And in fact, uh, along with GCP2 is a tree network. So we're in instrumenting trees. This is part of the Institute of HeartMath that's our partner on this uh, to create a tree network to see if uh, we can pick up the kind of the electrophysiology of trees and then correlate it against world events. That's wonderful. That's yeah. wonderful. You know? And we're reasonably sure that we'll pick up something like that. Because, I suspect you will too. I hope. Yeah. You, I mean, a, a forest is, we, we can't see it very well as a living creature, but it is. It's a community of living creatures. It's just a lot slower than we are. Uh, but so I, I think we're talking about something like sentience that is that has this capacity. And so the, yes, the universe is winding down. It's, it's entropic. Uh, the reason why we are the way we are in all living systems actually is because we're open systems and we eat energy and we use that to reverse the entropy. So we are negentropic creatures. We are eating negentropy through, through food, essentially, which keeps us pushing against entropy, but eventually it'll fail and then we fall apart. Mm. So this, this is happening everywhere in, in the universe all the time. Wow, how interesting. Um, I want to ask you one more question, Professor. Uh, we've been covering for weeks here on the program uh, an interactive geocaching app called Randonautica. And the strange, sometimes uh, very dark discoveries people are making when using it. So essentially, this app offers users coordinates that are generated from a quantum random number generator. The promise of bringing them to anomalous items or locations that have something to do with the user's intent, which mm -hmm. they are instructed to focus on while using the app. So mm -hmm. users now are finding everything from you know, synchronistic anomalies, uh, items of importance, uh, even things charged, highly charged like dead bodies, right? At the same exact coordinates that they're given through this app. What do you think is going on with something like this, Professor? And is this more of that churn that we were talking about earlier? There's 8 million people using this app and working with intention through random number generators to find different strangeness. That's a modern version of throwing the runes or mm -hmm. the I Ching, right? It's, it's a divination method and there it's, this has been around forever. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that sense, it's nothing new. Yeah. It, it has the technological veneer on it, but somebody who's adept at using a pendulum or, or throwing the stones or the bones or you name it, that's what they've been doing. And do you think so that the, there's a, the overwhelming, um, should there be a cautiousness or an initiation that occurs before a large amount of people should use a divination tool like this? Uh, or do you feel like it's a passive effect and something that may just garner curiosity and engagement to the topic? Yeah, the latter. Yeah. Right. I don't, I don't think this is uh, physically changing the world. It, it's opening new possibilities, just like in, any divination form would do. And some people are going to be quite talented at it, and they're going to freak themselves out with the synchronicities that occur <laughs> in exactly the same way that the kids are attracted to the Ouija board, and they're going to freak themselves out with it. There you go. Yeah. Some small percentage of people using a Ouija board will have a psychotic break. 
Mm-hmm. Some small percentage of people using this app are going to end up with a psychotic break because they may not be able to, to, to take the, this concept of uh, the immediacy of a synchronicity, right? I mean, people ex- sort, of, sort of thrilled at the anomalous nature of it. And some people can just, you know, they, they'll experience and say, well, that was, that was weird, and then go on with their lives. Others will get obsessed with it. And then that's generally not a good thing to do. To do, You know, it's, it's like getting obsessed with the Ouija board and spending hours with it every day. That's not healthy. Yeah, right. So, right. Or a radio show, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, there you go. Something like that. At least right. with, a, with a radio show, there's, there's some different... Right, unless you have the same guest again and again and again, then that's not very healthy. I thought that's what we were going to do, Professor. I thought you were just going to be coming back and it was just going to be us three. No. Okay. No, that would well, not be healthy. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe next year. Uh, these books you should check out, and there's more. But, Professor, Dr. Dean Raiden, it was a, 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 an honor to speak with you, my friend. And thank you so much for coming on Night Drift by Euphemet. Take care tonight, and I'll have all of your contact information and links right in the show notes so people can find them. Great. All right. Have a good night, Professor. Take care. Okay. Bye. Bye now. Tim and I will be right back with listener questions here on Night Drift, presented by Euphemed. UFOs seem to be invading both our skies and our news outlets like never before. And more people are starting to look up and are wondering who or what might be out there. In 2016, Ryan Sprague introduced the world to countless UFO encounters that had never been made public before. And now, in the second edition of his book, he revisits these events and introduces brand new UFO cases in Somewhere in the Skies, a human approach to the UFO phenomenon. How have these events changed the lives of those involved? And what might it tell us about the phenomenon? With in-depth follow-ups, brand new chapters, and detailed testimony from credible witnesses and insight from those in the psychological, academic, and scientific fields, Somewhere in the Skies, a human approach to the UFO phenomenon, weaves together a story of stories, attempting to get to the heart of these mysteries one experience at a time. Available now on Amazon in both paperback and ebook. To learn more, visit somewhereintheskies.com. You are listening to Night Drift with Jim Perry. From west of the Cascades to the rest of the world, lines are open. So that was that was that was super fascinating, everybody, right? Yeah, that was fascinating. It was a dream of mine to speak with Professor Dean Radin, Dr. Dean Radin. Um, you know, I still had so many questions that I could have asked him, and I believe same for you, Tim. I just love and appreciate his approach to I don't know integrating magic into materialism. And the way he does that through these books that are, you know, really easy to read, you know, there's, it's not like he's killing you with graphs and numbers and data points. Uh, He's a, he's a great writer. And so it it goes down great. 
What's interesting to me, and I'm glad we brought up and touched on Randonautica as well, because I think in terms of a defining modality of the nature of consciousness and what our relationship to it and that other side, it's so important to continue chasing that story down. And I tend to agree with what his summation was, that this is sort of like the new version of a Ouija board, perhaps. A lot of folks probably aren't processing it that way. And I don't think they'd need to, you know. I don't know if the people using a Ouija board, most of them knew about the modalities of spirit tapping or, you know, some of the other <laughs> divination techniques that were present before, right? So maybe it's okay for the uninitiated to to break into this sort of work for a greater understanding of some sort of shared consciousness. What do you think about that? No, I do. You know, I really appreciate Dean for being able to toe the line between the establishment, you know, if you can call it that, and 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 the fringe. You know, and for him it's not even fringe because he's he's established. You know, that's why writing a book like Real Magic was a step outside the box for him. But you know, I so appreciate his ability to to bring credibility to this field and to be able to expand that limited mindset that's kind of holding on to things as they are, you know, without I guess so we don't have some kind of collective psychotic break, you know, for people taking in concepts and aspects of reality that are just too much to digest all at once. Are you concerned about that aspect? People taking on too much and having breaks and not being ready for it. Well, it happens. Happens all the time. You know, I mean, I think Dean would agree with me when I said that, you know, Eastern tradition, East and West are so different when it comes to the working with consciousness. You know, to, he used yoga as, uh, and as, as an example. It's so true. You know, yoga in the East has to do with a, a union with yourself and, and, and they honor the holographic nature. So reality opens up in a whole different way to you as you heal and have that kind of experience with yourself. So that's what it's about. And in West, it's, it's something different, you know. So what he's able to do by bridging these gaps is just so important, you know, and it opens up, uh, as he was saying, uh, much more possibility. We're, we have open lines right now, too. So if anyone wants to jump on and chat with us, uh, your reactions to Professor Dean Radin, to the Global Consciousness Project, to what we're, you know, sort of now learning more and more about, you know, very learned folks using quantum random number generators weighing in on Randonautica after a lot of us talked to the CEO, uh, you know, uh, two weeks ago or, or a month ago or whatever. Uh, Tim. While that's going on, you know, I'd like your opinion on the importance of more people understanding or exploring the notion, let's say it that way, exploring the notion that magic is indeed real. What does that do to us? I stick with the transformation aspect. It's impossible not to be transformed when you're working with the level of reality that honors magic, you know, or I could say the other way around when we open up or awaken to or heal into the ability to realize that it's all magic already. 
mm-hmm. know, so both are happening at the same time. It's that push and pull, you know, going in, going in and going out to this truth at the same time, inner and outer. So there's always that relationship. So, you know, I think, you know, Dean said a lot of things that are really on point in terms of the readiness of the public. You know, why, why don't we have these free energy machines? Why aren't we all awake to the, the dazzling, shimmering nature of reality that some people talk about? And we say, you're crazy. You know, where we say, you know, we make fun of them because they're, they're so in love with life. And the truth is they are. And the truth is they are awake to something that, that maybe we're not awakened to, you know, and maybe just by being around them, some kind of, you know, people experience this with saints and other, you know, what Dean said, but people with cities or powers, there's a, there's a mirroring that goes on, mirroring of neurons that goes on. You know, people just like to sit around people who are so charismatic, makes them feel good. You know, so I, you know, so I guess I'm saying a bunch of things at once here where, you know, as as one of us starts to awaken to the magical aspect of reality, they're awakening to their own magical aspect. And that sort of flowers or, you know, in the Eastern yogic traditions, it's the lotus flowering, right? So there's like a perfume that goes off or, and all the bees come for the honey, you know, and that's, that's a part of, that's a part of the linear process of this. If we just shoved it down everybody's throat, people would split. That's what he meant by a psychotic break because we simply, in the Kabbalah, it's called shattering. It doesn't need to be so dramatic. It could just be, you know, death of a loved one. I can't take this in right now. So I'm in denial. So a certain level of reality is limited, right? So then you can see denial as something that's actually quite positive and quite creative. It keeps us alive. So it's a matter of readiness. It's a matter of wanting it. It's, you know, it's a matter of, you know, Dean was saying how, you know, if somebody's asking, can I be Harry Potter? I would actually challenge, I didn't want to, but I could challenge that a little bit because I wanted to be Harry Potter. And now I feel like I'm kind of getting there. You know, I can't, I don't have the magic wand or anything like that, but I understand that level of reality. I like to work with it with healing, but um, there's so many other ways that people work with this level of reality. I just, I think it's wonderful. So, yeah, timing. That's timing. true. I mean, I always wanted to be an X-Man. So you're getting there. I don't know. I don't know if I'm much closer. <laughs> one day. Give me one sec. One sec, Jim. I got a cat fighting with a raccoon right outside my door. <laughs> so wait a minute. You're helping? You're helping your cat fight the raccoon? Is that what's going on? Like it was you and the cat versus the raccoon? You know, this all happened so fast. Yesterday I left cat food outside just because just my cats are liking it outside. And uh, I saw a raccoon just, you know, swept up and just started eating all of it, right? So I go outside, you know, just to kind of, I bring a big broom with me because sure. raccoons are really cute and all, but I don't, I'm not a practiced rac- raccoonist, you know, so uh, I don't what know. what they call them. <laughs> exactly, right? I don't know. Okay. So, um, so, so I'm looking at this thing and it's giving me, it, it's so cute. It's adorable. But I'm thinking at any moment, this thing could tear my eyes out. I have no idea what it's possible. What, what, you're, you're, you're right to think that. Right? So yes. it's like, do you ever see Forrest Gump? You know, he had, you know, he's like the raccoons come on the porch and mama sweeps them off with the broom. Sure. You know? Yeah, so, sure. That's what I've been doing. So that's what I, that's what I did right there. The, my, my cat was literally face to face with the raccoon. I'm, I'm listening to Dean. I'm going out here. I'm going, oh God. Oh yeah, God. Yeah. About, I'm unconscious to some bloodshed that's about to happen here. <laughs> yeah, this is a standoff. Lucy calls on the, tr- the you the trash panda whisperer. <laughs> Haley says, when he said that about Harry Potter, I suddenly got very self-conscious about my picture at Hogwarts. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, well, listen, I think, you know, not everyone can be a professor. You know what I mean? And we all enter in this space. 
uh, in different ways. And a lot of us enter into the space by, well, having experiences, right, or being open to them, but also being inspired by media, being inspired by the things that we love to immerse ourselves, even for entertainment. You know, being within the periphery of the paranormal world, the amount of so-called investigators or writers or researchers into the paranormal that began because they loved the X-Files or Twin Peaks is no joke, right? And maybe they've never had an experience before in their life. Maybe they are not even interested in it, but they entered into some strange vortex because of their inherent enthusiasm over this. Mm -hmm. And over time, there seemingly is an initiation that can take place. And the universe expands. It speaks to you. And perhaps you find yourself at Chapel Perilous, right? That's Robert Anton Wilson would call it. Right. You know, um, that place after or before or during the shattering where you're trying to sort out what your goddamn reality is and if you're okay. Yeah, and that actually that reminds me. I went to the East and West yoga thing because I, I, I wanted to say in the East, people have these kinds of breaks pretty often. I mean, I wouldn't say pretty often, but it's, really? it's, it's known as a, a natural process. You know, that, that there's a story of a woman, you know, you can read any of these books of uh, Yogananda, you know, any of these like real famous yogis, you know, the guy who brought yoga over from the East. I mean, each chapter is another story of something that is absolutely unbelievable, you know, a bilocation. You know, how can, you know, dematerialization and showing up one place, or not, you know, but then you see, you hear multiple stories of different saints that in this happening, you know, Ramana, uh, Ramana Maharshi, uh, uh, there's, there's a tremendous amount, long story short, there's a tremendous amount of, uh, of people out there that have these cities, but before they were able to integrate these cities, Ramana Maharshi, for example, uh, literally forgot he had a body for like years and years and he would have been dead had the culture not suspected that he was having an awakening journey and so mm -hmm. they fed him and they kept him alive and they bathed him and years later he kind of came back to consciousness now the, the fact check that the, the spirit of that is true and it's not the first time there's another story of i think a catholic saint who did somersaults for like two years when she awakened to her love of god you know, whatever God is, my God is a is non-dual state of consciousness, you know, working that active approach. But, you know, when somebody awakens to this kind of stuff, <laughs> there's a level of aliveness that comes in that needs to be metabolized. And you've got mind, body, spirit, and the physical body, you know, working at different paces, you know, so we're going to naturally split. So we need to have a culture that's ready to honor that and cultivate it and be there to help people while they go through this, uh, you know, X-Men type mutation. Oh, it's so important. Yeah, it's so important. And as the world continues to uh, seemingly get stranger and stranger, it's almost as if an acceptance or a participatory hand uh, holding into whatever this new reality is required for us to have a greater understanding of the potential uh, I don't know, a tenuous relationship that occurs with the known and the unknown, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I want to qualify something too. When you're saying Sidhe's, you're, you're, cities, you're saying Sidhe's, you're saying S-I-D-H-E. S-I-D-D-H-I, usually okay. I think it's pronounced. Or and, there might be an even there, but yeah. And des describe, describe what that means for folks that may not know. Sure. You know, if you, if you read the Yoga Sutras of Patanjali, for example, there's an entire 
maybe a whole section of the book called Cities. <clears throat> what they're talking about are powers that are accumulated for them. They think over lifetimes, you know, because they believe in reincarnation. But, you know, in my world, I'm not so sure about that. I think it might be all happening at the same time in certain ways, you know. But the point is, at some point, uh, the human awakens to some aspect of reality and can do some kind of stuff that is, like I said before, quite unbelievable, like by location. Or, you know, like Dean Radin is more focused on is the, the psychic phenomena and that sort of stuff. But um, cities are more like uh, people that can live for 150 years, 200 years. You know, people that are buried in the ground. And these are, this is documented stuff. People that are buried in the ground for a year and then, then, and, and then dug up. And uh, maybe their arm was eaten by ants. But other than that, they're, they're pretty good to go. You know, it's like, how did you do that? How did you know that each cell in the body has enough oxygen? You know, how did you, how did you, you know, and um, there's this sort of wisdom, there's this sort of otherworldly knowing, there's this spontaneity to it. Even my favorite saint, Maharaji, well, they're all called Maharaji out east, but Neeb Karoli Baba, you know, he had, he was a, he was a family man, normal guy, had kids. And then one day went to step on a train and the train didn't start. And uh, he was in the first class compartment. And so they said, sir, you're, you know, you didn't get a ticket for this. You got to get off the train. He said, well, if you take me off the train, the train's not going to start at all. You know, there's no problems with the train, but I'm telling you, it's, it's not going to start. They kick him off for a couple hours. The train won't start. They try everything. They check all the mechanics. Train's fine. Finally, they're like, all right, get on the train. Train starts again. That was at Neeb Karoli train station. So that's how he got his nickname, Neeb Karoli Baba. You know, but since then he went on to perform thousands, hundreds of thousands of miracles. And there's many books about that. But he's, he's one of thousands of other saints and people that have awakened to these cities and practice them. And I can say personally, I work with people who do this. And I, that I aspire to, to do that. It's not, it's not like I want, it's it kind of, you know, the powers kind of got me on this path to begin with. Then I understood the power of healing and kindness and that kind of stuff. But I figured, oh, these are gifts along the way. And there's a lot of responsibility that comes to them. With them. With great power, right? Yes, sir. There, we keep, keep bumping into the same wisdom over and over. Jacob says it's a bigger conversation, but we also have the media to the contrary, that being awake to these things is actually not okay. But that seems to be such a Western thing. Do you think COVID's after effects will impact this? Seems like these... Uh, seems like there's maybe more obvious synchronicity or maybe we're just noticing it more. I was taking in the question for a sec. Mm -hmm. So when it's when we're talking about it's a bigger conversation, Jacob, can we let know what what is it that you're discussing exactly? You know, we have the media to the contrary that's being awake to these things is actually not okay. So I just want to know what he's talking about in terms of it, and then I can address the question. Do you know what he means, Jim? I, I don't, Jacob. You can either chat or you can um, you can jump into the conversation if you want to too. We'd, we'd love to uh, hear from you. And that can be audio or video, and that's fine. Oh, okay. Oh, hey. Hey, sorry about that. No worries. <laughs> I was trying to figure out a better way to formulate it, but I guess it's, it's when, we, when we talk about, I guess, being open or, or becoming awake, we see a lot of messages on the media that say, like, that's, you know, Either that's not okay, it's a mental health problem, it's, you know, why don't you believe in what you can see? 
you know, and I was thinking of um, the, the satire movie Men Who Stare at Goats, right? Like when, when, when Dean was talking, like that was something that I was like, you know, that's that shows kind of the history of some of that work, but also it makes it sound like it's funny and it's not real. Um, right. So I guess that's kind of what that's, that's kind of the it that I'm, you know, like, how do we, how can we have rational discussions about this when in other areas and other arenas that are not like people that are, you know, familiar with euphemet and familiar with these types of discussions. I guess that's kind of what I'm talking about, if that makes sense. Yeah, Yeah. it does. I mean, yeah, there's that uh, culture of sort of non-belief or disbelief or infringement, uh, alienation that occurs with any of these topics, right? Uh, That's why for the most part, you know, any news story per UFO uh, before 2017 was accompanied by an X-Files theme song underneath it, right? <laughs> you know, there's this measuring of what is, you know, sort of our consensus reality and what, uh, you know, what is the other. And, and that's framed very seemingly deliberately in a way that it limits the possibility for us to have deep conversations about this in public forums without scrutiny, without uh, feeling like the other. Mm -hmm. You know, um, I think that's lessening now in a time where media and the mainstream has become fractured. Uh, These things that are fringe are now mainstream in a lot of ways. Sometimes that's in the form of entertainment, right? But also it's in the form of, of discourse, popular discourse and of subcultures that have risen to include a big enough niche that these voices are finally being heard in a big way. I, I think you've met the only re- reason exists is because of, uh, you know, a strong niche community that's able to support that and then network with other um, institutions. Right. Um, So, yeah, I mean, what do you think about that, Tim? I'm thinking about some of the points that we made earlier. Just, you know, let's let's look at it. First of all, a little synchronicity. We used to work with Dr. Richard Allen Miller, who is the head of that project, actually. Did you know that, Jim? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Dr. Richard Allen Miller. I think I think since he's he's he may have had a bit of a psychotic break, but he was a, he's a brilliant man. You know, was kind of doing interviews with him was a little bit like herding cats. But right. I learned yeah, a lot. I remember that? Yeah, I, I learned a lot by working with that man. And you know, what it comes down to is that there's always going to be a natural amount. Again, there's a natural amount of resistance that's built into life to any kind of larger concept or anything that's going to force us to transform and change. Because that's what it—that's what it's about. It's, you know, our ego is designed to keep things safe and happy, and that means keep things exactly as they are, even if it's not really safe or happy. But it's a distorted perception of that. So people are going to be pushing back, and and resistance has so many faces, from ridicule to dismissing to, and then you add the complexity of the fact, like what Dean Radin said, disinformation is real. Right. So there's just there's more and more and more that goes into this. And so when you ask the question, how do we have these kinds of conversations? This is it. There's no other way that I can see mm-hmm. that we can do it. This mm-hmm. is you know, you've got the ancient times, you've got the mystery schools and the people that came together and they, that have their gatherings. And, you know, there's the people that knew about it and there's the people that aren't. You know, my teacher tells me there's some people who are awake to the larger levels of reality. And there's some people who come in in this incarnation and they're never going to know. 
and that's their purpose and that's just fine. And that actually feeds all of this in a particular way and it's necessary and it's included. So there's a sort of acceptance that needs to take place in the fact that, you know what, it, we might be fringe and outliers to a certain extent forever and we might have to come together in small, safe groups because to talk about these big things that are going to change I mean, if you think about the implications of just what Dean Radin was talking about today, this would change the world, right? right? And people aren't ready for that. And there's a lot of people that are pretty happy with the way things are. So it starts to move into more of a dangerous and more tribal consciousness. You know, keep things the same. If you're not in the tribe, get out of here. And get out of here could mean we'll kill you, you know? Right. So we'll, we'll keep it safe. And we, we do our work as we do our work. And those are the eyes to see. We'll, we'll, we'll see it. And that's, that's how I see it. Jacob, uh, let us know what you think about that. Lucy has a comment. I think COVID is initiation of a huge awakening of consciousness, not in a way we'd see as positive from a traditional viewpoint, but an uh, but an initiation nonetheless. I absolutely agree. Absolutely, I think any kind of major change when we get uprooted with this kind of terror and this kind of unknown and this kind of conflict, there's going to be some sort of conflict resolution. You know, so my teacher says, value war, value war. That means, can you tolerate the different viewpoints? Can you tolerate all of the shit that's being brought up because of what this is happening? How many lives have already changed? How many people have already decided that they don't go on to go to work in the same way anymore, right? Or they've decided, yeah, yeah. I got a new hobby. You know what? This is what I'm going to do. I, I, right. I, I talk to people every day that this is happening. Mm -hmm. So it starts on an individual level and then it accelerates, you know, just like that global consciousness thing. It starts to just starts to move and you start to see, Hey, that guy over there had a really interesting experience during the COVID stuff. You know, I'm still doing my BS job. Why am I doing, it? you know, this guy over here is loving life. Well, and it just starts to unfold in that way. Make sense. Yeah. And so, I think, so I think we got to support each other through this, you know, because it's not, it's not easy and, and, and there's a lot of things that are, that are going wrong and there's a lot of bad stuff going on, but there's, there's a lot of good too. And I think a lot of people that can't see it, Lucy can, but I, I think that comes with a lot of trust and faith with, with the way things, with just with the truth of how reality works. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good way to wrap this up for tonight. Folks, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate this. I love this opportunity to do these live for you guys and uh, also bring on friends as co-hosts, I think has been so much fun and, you know, doing these on a regular basis with Tim have just been a joy. Uh, we do have some more of these coming up on September 11th. We'll be back with the CEO of Randonautica since our previous conversation, I didn't record. <laughs> so we are going to be back with you. And it's good. You know what I mean? I, I think it's great because we're going back now after having some insight from him, having a nice little secret, you know, meeting with him with some patrons. And uh, now we get to go back more informed with some opinions from people like Dean Radin and Rupert Sheldrake and, and uh, Chris Hardy, who I interviewed on Monday. You know, these folks, PhD, uh, educated folks that have legitimate data and science to back up what their ideas and estimations could be for, you know, the potential of this app. So I think, I think it's great. I think it's great that we have them back on. I think it's a wonderful addition, another big piece of the pie, and it'll bring a ton of dimensionality to a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. Yeah, 
most definitely. Well, thank you for everything, Tim. Thank you, patrons. We'll see you soon. Appreciate you. Love you guys. Uh, keep looking up. And uh, yeah, till next time. Bye-bye. Night-night. Thank you for listening to this edition of Night Drift, presented by Euphemed. Thank you again to our guest, Dr. Dean Raiden. You can find links to his recent books and website in the show notes. Purchase of books from Euphemed provided Amazon links now help support the show. You can find links to Tim Rothschild's work also in the show notes. To be a part of our next live Zoom interview, join us on Patreon. It's $5 per month and includes access to Euphemed, the original series, and much more. Thank you to The Daily Shine and Anchor.fm for sponsoring the show. For everything you've met, including how you can subscribe to the show, our short film series with Carl Pfeiffer of Hellier, merch, and links to our social media, visit euphemet.com. Thank you for listening. This is Jim Perry. And until next time, keep looking up. Follow Euphemet on Spotify and subscribe on iTunes to receive new episodes of Night Drift automatically and gain access to all of our past episodes.